Talk, talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Ed Mamet and Kevin Schroeder. Good afternoon. Welcome to Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired detective from NYPD, and I'm here with retired Captain Ed Mamet. Hello, everybody. This is retired Captain Ed Mamet with Kevin Schroeder. Thank you, Ed. Our guest today is Hal Sherman, Detective Hal Sherman, first grade, retired from NYPD. He spent a lot of time in crime scene, dealing with forensics and DNAs, and we're here. Hal Sherman, are you on? Yes, I am, Kevin. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Welcome, and thank you for being a part of our show, Cop Talk. So anyway, Hal, could you just give us a little background of your career with the NYPD? Sure. I started in uniform in the 42nd Precinct of the South Bronx. And after several years, I went on to the narcotics division. And from 1987 until the year 2002, I was assigned to the crime scene unit. Okay, Hal. And I'm sorry, when did you retire? 2002, I retired from the crime scene unit. And what have you been doing since, Hal? Basically, private consulting for different organizations. One of them is the National Institute for Law and Justice, where we attempt to try to find closure with people who have families, members, or friends that are missing. I also have worked on many films and TV shows and also, again, do a private defense and prosecution consulting. Great, great. And how, what films and shows have you been consulting on and worked on? In the past, I had done about nine seasons of Law & Order SVU. I consulted on The Bone Collector, Ransom, She Hate Me, Summer of Sam, In the Cut, and I've done also, two years ago, I also did a special Spike Lee HBO Max on the Trade Center and pandemic. Oh, very good. Very good. Very good. That brings us right into what we like to talk about today, the famous case out in Idaho. Yes. So basically, just want to touch on, you know, obviously the case is revolved around a lot of forensics and DNA, et cetera. And basically, it's in your ballpark, your wheelhouse, your experience with the NYPD handling many, many homicide cases with collecting evidence and processing the crime scene. So I'd like you to just touch on the Idaho case, where you think it is, where it should be, in regards to the forensics and the DNA that's we're being you know educated about today. Well, I can tell you many of these things in my book are common sense, practical, and I speak more as a practitioner as opposed to being an academic. The most important thing in any crime scene, especially a crime scene of this type, is to have proper documentation, collection, and preservation of the physical evidence at the scene. I can't overemphasize the fact that you need to have documentation. You can't just run in there, grab some things, and run back out. Everything has to be done in a methodical manner. I mean, you can collect as many items as you want, but in this case especially, you want to be able to triage the evidence. You want to be able to not overwhelm the police laboratory at the location. You want to be able to recover items and then submit them. And also the most important thing also is to have realistic expectations. Every arrest is made in a day, a week, a month, or a year. Some people are under the thought process, arrest should have been made within a day or a week. And, you know, if arrest was not made, then, oh my goodness, I can't believe that they're slacking. You know, in this instance, the person that we, who allegedly did it, obviously has some knowledge and background and they did everything in their power to try to elude being captured or identified and captured. However, as in many crimes, the person was in fact apprehended and now he's been extradited. 
Hal, I'd like to point out to the audience one thing that I know you're aware of. Most police agencies train their first responders to do basic preliminary crime scene investigation. And safeguarding the scene is, you know, is, is paramount. I know that from my time in the New York City Police Department as a detective commander, I used to address the outgoing platoon's roll call and emphasize to them the importance of protecting the scene when they get there and not, you know, trampling over evidence, not using the telephone, not, you know, not using things that'll disturb the critical evidence. So how's your experience been with that, you know, with the cases you've been involved with? Have the police officers around the country adhered to that or is it a mixed bag because there's so many different police agencies in this country? Everybody has different kind of training. But there is basic, there should be basic training on crime scene protection. Correct. And I've run the gamut. I've taught for the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies. And there are great small agencies and there are okay small agencies, just like there are great large agencies. And, you know, not everything always goes according to Hoyle. There are people who they, no matter what, I won't touch anything. However, as soon as you walk into that scene, potentially you're moving items. You know, theoretically, if I walk in, I might bring a hair in with me from the outside and now leave it inside. And then if it's recovered, somebody might say, oh, this hair was inside the crime scene. And they're right. It was. I had had a case in Staten Island where a gentleman was killed by his next door neighbor. And inside of the deceased's hand, I did find beard hair. I couldn't identify them, but I knew he had a hair in his hand. I knew there was blood there. And I also found a single dog hair inside of the crime scene. The deceased did not have the dog hair. The dog hair actually fell off of the suspect who was later convicted, and it fell off of his clothing as he walked into the house. So it's very easy for somebody to walk into a location and either bring in something with them or bring something out with them. I don't know where this saying is from, but with great power comes great responsibility. And that's why it's of the utmost importance to make sure that a valid crime scene is established, and only those people that are actually needed inside of the crime scene go in there. In New York City, there was supposed to only be four people inside of the crime scene. That would be the crime scene detective, the catching detective, the medical examiner, and the ADA who was riding. Don't need to have five, 10, 15 people walking around, and maybe good-naturedly, everybody wants to do something to help the cause, but sometimes doing nothing is the best thing. I remember one particular case. It's not only protecting the crime scene and not disturbing anything, but it's also being aware, using your senses. I remember, and your vision. I remember one particular case. A woman was found murdered, and the suspect was her husband, who was a doctor. And the interesting thing about it was she was preparing food. And one of the things that came up later on was the question of the butter. There was butter on the kitchen table, and... Apparently, when the police got there, the bar of butter was still in its shape. But later on, it turned liquid. And I remember right. be, I was the sergeant at the time supervising, and I was asked, do I recall whether the butter was melted or whether the butter was intact at the time? Because using that, they could estimate they the- extrapolate and provide a timeline. Estimate the time, right. So it's not just not disturbing things, but being aware of when you walk in, what you, what you smell- what you feel and what you see, things like that are very important at a crime scene. For example, if that right. butter, if someone had remembered that butter was solid at the time, 
that would have been a very important clue in terms of the solution of the case, which, by the way, was never solved. Right. I mean, we've all got some amazing thumbs-up stories where the cop, the cop and first responders did an amazing job of safeguarding. And I think, sadly, we all have some thumbs-down stories or anecdotes about that, where people have legitimately changed the channel on a TV because they wanted to watch a football game because it's Sunday afternoon. And based on my training experience, I know that the older woman who was not English-speaking was not watching a football game at four in the afternoon. Perhaps the people that was there wanted to watch the game and forgot what their real purpose to their job was. Exactly. Once the first responder, first officer on the crime scene arrives and he determines it is a crime scene, he needs to back out and let the start to preserve the, the location for, as a crime scene, designated a crime scene. 100 percent. 100 percent, Kevin. Unfortunately, I mean, that's in a perfect world. And we know, you know, sometimes we're human and things go a different way. You're right. And Kevin, you know what? It's just like many people ask us all as well. You know, you guys have the inside track because you guys know things. You know, how come this wasn't solved in a day or a week? How it takes a long time potentially, and I have to just really preface that the right of the public to be informed and kept abreast of any and all details does not really supersede the need for the investigation to take place in a timely fashion. Potentially, information. Correct, Hal. It's basically it's basically television. Correct. You know, within 24 hours, we have the perpetrator prosecuted. You know, he's in jail, and life goes on. But that's TV take two. There's a fine line between educating and entertaining. And sadly, sometimes art, you know, people think, oh, I saw it on TV, and it doesn't work that way. And another very important thing for all people to have in life is realistic expectations. You can't just expect somebody to walk in there and wave the magic wand. Oh, here's the DNA. We know who it belongs to. Let's go get them. It doesn't work that way. Hal, you're familiar with the Moscow, Idaho murders, correct? Yes. All right. Can you talk about that? Why? information that I have is that it started off with a, a car being seen at, at the crime scene and the, the police put out a call to the public of anyone who knows such a car. And apparently they got 23,000 tips on this kind of car. But what do you know in terms of the forensics that were developed in that case and whatever you know, the progress of the case at this point? Well, I can tell you only basically probably no, but I do recall that there was a witness who later called the police and she had notified them of his approximate height. And then, as you said, there was a video of a car being leaving the scene or in proximity to the scene and being that happened in the middle of the night, not as if this car would be often in that location traveling at that rate of speed. So again, they were able to backtrack to try to ascertain where this, you know, the car. Now, I remember couple of days after the incident happened, they said, oh, well, look, they found a white Elantra nearby and it was crashed and it had nothing to do with this. So at least it's a lead. And they will say, well, at least they could rule that out. And as you said, there were many cars, but ultimately they were able to find the person that they believed did it. They then followed him cross country. And ultimately there was DNA, touch DNA recovered on the, on the sheet. Now, it's real important to note that touch DNA, it gets there, it's not touching it. However, fortunately, people had not picked up the knife blade or the knife sheath to say, oh, look at this, etc." So ultimately, they believed that they had the right person. And then 
the police went and they got what they call a discarded sample, which would be debris from the family and able to do a familial search and determine that it was a close family member whose DNA was on the button, the snap on the knife sheath. And that's how they linked it up. So word of many different items, according to the, you know, the media that, you know, oh, they did a search in the Washington State University Police, and they found two cuttings from an uncased pillow with a brownish stain. Now, a lot of people jump to conclusions. That must be from the murder. It also could be very possible from somebody's shape. And they took their face off. So every item that's seized in this case is going to be, you know, an OMG moment that this breaks the case. You know, they found eight possible hair strands in, the, in his bedroom of, you know, his house. And again, doesn't mean that he brought eight hair strands with him from the people who died. Could it be? Surely, yes. They found a possible head hair strand. And they also say that they had matching footprints from his shoes at the scene as opposed to the house. A crime lab is never going to use the term, or they shouldn't use the term matching. They should say consistent with or inconsistent with or inconclusive. Just like I know we're going a little bit off, or I'm going a little bit off on a tangent, the murder in Massachusetts. Supposedly, they found a Tyvek suit along with the debris that was discarded and they found in the dumps. So because of people reading and because of the internet, people now know a lot more about how to attract and try to not get themselves caught with physical evidence. Now, when we all first heard about this Idaho case, did you believe, did you think that it was only one suspect, one perpetrator? I'm going to say I'm inconclusive. I didn't think yes or no. I did have another case out of state once where it was eight people that were killed by blunt trauma. And, you know, if you put on your reasonable man hat, like, wow, how could four people be killed by one person with a knife? I mean, you would think that potentially somebody would have awoken or become startled or somebody would have screamed. So I have, you know, I have the, so to speak, the jury is still out on that. Could it be? Sure. Would I be surprised it was more than one person? I wouldn't be surprised one or the other. Yes, I agree. We do know, however, we do know that the sheath had allegedly the DNA from the suspect. So to be noted that as Captain Mammoth retired, Captain Mammoth tells us, you know, everybody is trained in safeguarding and doing a certain amount of crime scenes. I believe Moscow, Idaho had not had a homicide in the last seven years. So as I was told once by somebody, just because you've been doing something 15 years doesn't mean you're doing it right. And obviously, many of the things that appear to be done were done properly because they had gotten physical evidence. And unlike when you and I, Kevin, were rookies, have cell phones. They now have able to track down and ping the phone, triangulate the phone. And I believe that the person that's been arrested has 12 different cases or times that they identified his phone being near that residence. And that's another thing. Besides, right. we can't just depend solely on DNA. We can't just solely do physical evidence. It has to be a holistic method and it has to be with many different disciplines. You know, you know, an, uh, an interesting point was just made. Modern technology. Uh, back in my day, crime scenes, uh, crimes were much harder to investigate. Today, probably is a lot easier with DNA, with surveillance cameras, with cell phones. Detectives don't have to do that much gumshoe work as, as I had to do when I was a young detective, where we would go out in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, and look for you know dog walkers 
insomniacs, right. milkman deliveries, you know, to find witnesses. Today, you just go through the street and you know, retrieve the video camera footage and you can see who committed the crime. So I have well, to say, in my opinion, it's a lot easier today to be a detective than it was back in my time, which goes back 40 years or more than 40 years. Well, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, Eddie. However, <laughs> you know, would true, you agree, true. Sadly, well, would you agree with what I just said? Yes. Well, sadly, that also might not keep detectives as sharp because some of their skills might not be as well honed now. Oh, well, okay, I have a checklist. I know to do A, B, C, D, and E. And sometimes by all this technology, it also inhibits people from looking outside the box. That's what and I as meant. You mentioned earlier, and as you mentioned earlier, and I think we're just making up this number that there was 23,000 cars they were looking for. So sometimes, you know, I, do you know how many hundreds or thousands of tips came flying into the agencies? I mean, I thought there was something like 5,000 to be, to be off on that. However, again, with great power comes great responsibility, and you still have to triage and find out who knows what, who's realistic, be telling the truth. I think this person is just making stuff up, and this pile over here is going to reserve for uh, reviewing later on. But there are a lot more technology. As I mentioned before, we used to need like roughly just either semen or saliva or blood, roughly the size of a quarter or a half dollar in order to do a DNA analysis. And that was in the mid to late 80s. And nowadays, and again, I'm being facetious, you just look at something and your DNA is there. So we should just be thankful for all of the advances, just like in medicine. It's a lot easier to find something wrong with you now and identify it as opposed to what it was 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Wouldn't that have been a result of the World Trade Center disaster where the medical examiner got involved for many years trying to identify the remains? The DNA really came into its own in New York City at that time. Am I correct? Well, DNA first started really, I believe it was a case in the Bronx in the 1980s, and it was on somebody's watch. They found a very small amount. But DNA, just like your iPhone, I'm not plugging iPhone, your smartphone has more power in it right now as far as memory and as far as computation skills than the entire Apollo mission did for Apollo 13. So we did certainly get a lot more to the forefront from DNA. But, you know, you're talking 2001. We were all there. But we're now talking 20 years later. And it's, again, every year they, be, they get more and more savvy. They become more and more knowledgeable. And just the technology improves that much more. Actually, I can recall that the DNA, as I recall, it began in England. There was a book written called The Blooding. Are you aware of that? I'm somewhat familiar, but I mean, the English certainly were, Watson and Crick were certainly on the forefront of DNA. And then many other, you know, there was also, you know, you also had the Amanda Knox case where they were ultimately exonerated because of the way the DNA evidence was handled. Right. And the case I'm talking about was a small village in London where a young girl was found murdered. And they actually, the entire village, the people volunteered to give their blood. And, right. and they gave their blood, and that's how the suspect was found. I think he refused to give his blood. I'm trying to remember. He refused. It was one person, or maybe he gave his blood. But anyway, it began there, and then this book, The Blooding, was written. That book was written around 1978, right. 1979. So that was, I believe, the first real 
case of where they were able to prove a homicide using DNA before it came to the United States. If anybody's interested right. in reading it, the book is called The Blooding. Right. It's written by Joseph Wambaugh. Oh, uh, right. now, very good, interesting, very you good. Say, interesting you say that, you know, many of the people in the town, you know, gave their swabs or blood samples, et cetera, to try to solve this case. But I kind of defy you, Ed, tell me in 2023, when people, be they guilty or not guilty, are going to say, sure, take my DNA sample. Well, of course not. People this was, not this gonna, was England. <laughs> right. This, I mean, this happened you know, many, many years ago, and there's a great piece of technology and great police work, et cetera. But again, I mean, just think of, you know, the common man. I'm not giving you my DNA. I didn't do anything. Why would I give you my DNA swab? So, you know, it's good and it worked back then. And, you know, the, it's, it's a good book. I know it's published in 1995, but I don't know if many people are going to, would be as apt to give over their DNA nowadays. Hey, Hal, what happened to, you know, we used to be at a crime scene. I'm out 10 years now, but 10 years ago, we'd knock on every single door in an apartment building and try to get an eyewitness. It seems like we got away from that, and now we're canvassing for video versus actually speaking to people, knocking on doors and asking a question and solving right. a crime. You know, I kind of think in some ways it's kind of like, you know, our mothers or grandmothers who had recipes and knew how to, you know, oh, I don't have bullion, so I'll use such and such. I think nowadays, many investigators become just locked in that box, and they just can't think outside of that box. And it's, it's in some ways, it's like a dying art. The, you know, like Eddie could just look at somebody and say, yeah, I can see this, or I, can see, or I can't see that, maybe. Whereas people tend to really be just so much more focused on the technology. So you have to have a, a holistic approach. You have to be able to look at things from different angles and different type of technology and different you know, maybe you're not as good a interviewer as me. Okay, so maybe Hal should do the interview, or maybe Hal doesn't. You know, if you tell me you didn't do it, I might just shut down and not interview any further. So certain oh. people have certain skills and certain fortes, and mine is mine is crime scene always was. Right. Well, there's nothing wrong re-interviewing a witness numerous times if need be. Oh, a hundred percent. Then going at them, you know, over and over again, so to speak. You can't just like if you did something. And I said, did you do it? You said no. So I just said, okay, well, he said no. Exactly. How many people well, in your experience, the first time you asked them, did they do it, they admitted to doing it? <laughs> exactly. Again, sometimes there's numerous interviews in the box, as we say, the interview room, and, or even bringing in different the good cop, bad cop, you know, to get the truth. And sometimes you go through 10 different confessions to get the truth. But again, back to Idaho, Moscow. Ed? Yeah, well, did you see the affidavit on that search warrant that was issued? It was about 49 or 50 pages. I think you and I had talked about it. It was too much to read. But it seems to me that the news media wants to know what evidence was. From the brief reading, I, the brief glimpse I made of this affidavit, that the news media wants to know what evidence was recovered, and the agency does not want to reveal it. And so there was a motion made in the court to demand that the production of the return, the warrant return. Do you know anything about right. that? I've heard that, yes. But again, not to be thought it was a bad person on my part, but why can't we demand to know what Coca-Cola is made out of or Pepsi is made out of? So really, you'll find out at a later time when it's appropriate what evidence was there and what evidence was not there. I mean, I understand with the media... But again, their right to want to know does not override the right for an investigation. And I assure you, if you ask the families of all interested parties, 
they would say, we don't want this out in the media knowing exactly what was recovered and what wasn't recovered. And a lot of people, I'm sure, at ASQ, you know, but I just want to, I have to know what was the motive. We might not know the motive. Maybe he DM'd somebody on Instagram or some other social media and he was rebuffed. We don't know, but we don't have to. Everything doesn't have to be solved and every answer has to be given in a six-week period of time. I, again, I really understand people, you know, inquiring minds want to know, but investigating minds need to know, and their the right of the deceased should never be forsaken for the right of the, you know, oh, the six o'clock news, breaking news. I don't think that's really the, uh, the most important thing in life. I think the most important thing is having a valid arrest and having a prosecution that is successful. However, the evidence and the totality of circumstances are bear out to be. Absolutely, Hal. Well said. Hal, thank you very much for your time. And to be continued, I'm sure, you'll be back on our show, Cop Talk, and look forward to talking to you soon. And once again, thank you. Thank you, Hal. Great to have you on. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. Stay safe, and we'll speak soon. Okay. Thank you, Hal. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.